I'm Leslie Manukian, president of Health Freedom Defense Fund and host of Conversations on Health Freedom, a podcast about our most sacred human right. Today, my guest is Dr. Aaron Cariotti. Aaron is a psychiatrist and the director of the program in bioethics and American democracy at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and the director of Health and Human Flourishing Program at the Zephyr Institute in Palo Alto, California. He taught psychiatry previously at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine, where he was the director of medical ethics um, and the chairman of the ethics committee at the California Public or the California Department of State Hospitals. He was fired for declining the C-19 vaccination. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New Atlantis, Arc Digital, Public Disclosure, City Journal, and First Things. The real reason I want to have him on the show today, though, is to talk to him about his new book, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. For those of you who've been following me for a long time, you know that this is one of my big topics and has been for a long time. Um, so I'm absolutely thrilled to have Aaron with us today. So Aaron, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Leslie. It's great to be with you. I'm a Big fan of your work, as you know, but your audience should know that too. So looking forward to our conversation. You're, you're so sweet. Yeah. Um, this is such a huge conversation, right? Um, <laughs> I've been talking about the biosecurity. I mean, I literally wrote a article probably in March of 2020 called the slow March to authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was, um, let's just say that I, suspected from early January that what was happening was nothing to do with a true um, public health emergency, but something that was being exaggerated and then was going to be leveraged in service to the biosecurity state. So why don't we just start there? What is it? Just tell people what that means. What do you mean in your book when you talk about this? So what I call in the the subtitle, um, the subtitle is the rise of the biomedical security state. And what I mean by that term is the welding together of three things that prior to about 20 years ago is where I trace back the history of this. Uh, These things were were distinct and now uh, they they formed this new uh, conglomerate that is enormously powerful, unprecedented in the history of Western societies. And so the biomedical security state is made up of first an increasingly militarized public health apparatus. And we can talk more in a few minutes about what I mean by a militarized public health apparatus. That is welded to the second element, which is the use of digital technologies of surveillance and control for public health purposes. So the COVID event, I'm not going to call it a pandemic, but the COVID event was the first um major sort of public health crisis of the digital age and it was the first opportunity to utilize these uh novel technologies of surveillance and control starting with the the use of the mobile phone for that purpose um in order to try to manage in this case uh a highly contagious virus Uh, So we saw things during the pandemic, for example, like the CDC, without informing the American people, without getting consent, without even notifying the American people that this was happening, the CDC using bulk data collection to monitor how many people were gathering at public places. So using using cell phone data, basically, uh, to see how many people were gathering at a school, how many people were gathering at a church during lockdowns. Canada, it turns out, the Canadian Public Health Agency was doing the same thing, even though Justin Trudeau had explicitly publicly told the Canadian people that they were not going to do that. They went ahead and did it anyways. Israel did it first. That was the first country where it was publicly known that they were using uh, cell phone data to monitor people's movements. Uh, but they they at least passed an emergency legislative uh, um, you know, sort of measure. They they did it, you know, they did it publicly and people voted on it who could be voted out of office. Uh, I, I think it was a bad decision on the part of their uh, legislature, but 
it was at least, you know, done. It, it was not done behind the scenes the way it was done in the United States and, and Canada. And <clears throat> supposedly this bulk data was uh, anonymized. It was, it, it was supposed to be um, de-identified in such a way that you couldn't necessarily know, you know, who is this person that's, that's moving here or moving there or gathering here or there. But some researchers from Princeton showed that very easily with only four of the data points in this data set, you could readily identify, um, you know, who this, who this particular mobile phone belonged to. So it wasn't anonymized. It was, um, it was a form of mass surveillance. It was um, an unauthorized, I would argue, unconstitutional form of spying on the American people. And that's one example among many that I describe in the book, uh, we could also get into discussions, for example, of vaccine passports, uh, which was done obviously much more openly, but having to show a, a QR code to that demonstrated that I've done what the public health authorities commanded me to do, including in, injecting a novel gene therapy into my body that I may or may not have wanted in order to do very ordinary things like get on a plane, get on a train, go to a restaurant, gather in a public space. So these civil liberties, freedom of movement, freedom of association that are guaranteed in our constitution were suddenly contingent upon um, demonstrating that I, you know, I had, I had a good behavior report, <laughs> basically using digital technologies for that purpose. Uh, and so th these first two elements, the digital technologies of surveillance and control in the service of an increasingly militarized public health apparatus were backed up by the third element of the biomedical security state which was the police powers of the state which was um, basically emergency emergency decrees uh, most often uh, being given uh, given and promulgated either by the executive branch of state or federal governments or by unelected bureaucrats that were, you know, operating under the authority of the executive branch. So we had a situation in which we have one branch of government, the governor or the president and his subordinates declaring a state of emergency for an indefinite period of time. And during a state of emergency, the governors and the president or his appointees gain additional extra constitutional powers that they wouldn't otherwise have. So we had a situation in which when the president of the United States declared a public health emergency, which lasted until as recently as May 11th, I think was the day that it was finally sundowned. Uh, you had the president basically accruing 128 additional extra constitutional powers that he wouldn't otherwise have, um, including uh, access to emergency funding. That's a that's a big one. Right. So he had access to um, uh, access to money that otherwise, you know, would have been basically relegated to Congress. Congress holds the purse strings and Congress has to approve all uh, federal government funding with some exceptions, one of them being uh, this declared state of emergency. So we had a we had a situation which I consider a kind of constitutional crisis, actually, where the Constitution is indefinitely suspended by the same branch of government or by the same individual who gains additional powers by that declaration. And then there's no judicial or legislative checks and balances on that system so that that same person who's just gained those additional powers is the only one who can decide when it's time to relinquish those powers. Can I just so, tell you in the state of Idaho, it's, it's incredible what happened. Um, you know, we are generally speaking a very red state, but yeah. Um, our uh, governor is anything but what I would call a conservative with a small C and that he, yeah. he cares about the constitution and the rule of law. And what's really fascinating is that, so I've spoken on the show many times about the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act legislation. I'm sure you're aware of that. This is the legislation that was introduced two weeks after the Patriot Act was signed in 2001 yep. that accorded extraordinary powers to state health departments and state governors in the event of a public health emergency. How very convenient, right? Yeah. No coincidence so, there. Yep. No coincidence. So he declares the emergency under the PREP Act, then he is authorized to declare this emergency. And then he literally starts taking away laws 
He literally nullified laws in the state of Idaho, like your right to know where your child was if your child was taken into state custody. That's one I... (laughs) Yes. That's one I had Did you you hear about this? They were setting up these... um, these camps where they were going to sure. put children yep. in the state of Washington. Yep. There were there were supposedly some facilities in northern Idaho that um, patriotic Americans exposed, yep. and um, we started to reveal that he was actually literally rescinding our laws, which is not his job. Like, let's remember, mm-hmm. review, viewers, the executive's job is to right. lead. The legislator legislature's job is to pass laws which the governor is then supposed to enforce, ensure, you know, are um, operative in the state. And so this is not only was he, and then he also set up his own committee of something like, I don't know, eight or 10 or 12 people that he appointed to disseminate the COVID monies. Yep. Okay. So this is again, taking away from the, from the purse strings of the legislature. And, but the thing that was most um, alarming to us is that when the, um, there was a special um, convening of the legislature and they voted to maybe it was in a sec in the regular session. I can't remember, but they voted to actually curtail the governor's right to emergency power. So basically to say, listen, you can have it for a few months and yep. then it has to be um, it has to, you know, be uh, like ratified know, or renewed. by. Well, the- it has to be renewed and and have oversight by the legislature. Yeah, yeah. It passed. It passed with a veto-proof majority in this in the House and in the Senate, and then he vetoed it. And while and it was going to be, it was re-ratified by the House, so they overrode his veto. Yeah. He flipped something like six senators. It lost by one vote. But the yeah. point is exactly what you're saying. He had these extraordinary emergency powers accorded to, accorded to him by this emergency law, and then he cemented them in place by vetoing a law which would have actually said, no, you're accountable to the legislature and the people. It's so outrageously overbroad and so un-American, it's jaw-dropping. And yet millions of Americans are not up in arms about it. I just don't understand. It's, I think it's the biggest power grab uh, by the executive branch of the federal government, the executive branches of state governments that we've ever seen in this country. Obviously, you know, the system that our founders set up uh, with this, um, uh, with this system of government, these branches have always been in tension and always been sort of vying for the upper hand. Um, but the, the panic that was induced by the declared state of emergency and, and the fear that was promulgated and very often deliberately cultivated by extremely sophisticated techniques of propaganda that have been refined since really since the Second World War, mm-hmm. that created a social climate in which not only were the American people sort of willing to look the other way as state governors did this sort of thing, but many of them were clamoring for it. Many of them were rewarding and lauding the governors who were behaving in the most authoritarian manner as though they were the ones that were taking the threat most seriously. And so you had this weird situation in which governors were falling all over themselves to be the most restrictive and the most authoritarian and sort of the most extreme. It was a very, very bizarre situation that started to unfold in March of 2020 with the first of the lockdowns. And I think we still haven't really wrapped uh, wrapped our minds around what happened to us. And in part, my book is an attempt to help people drill down and first of all, realize everything that happened because a lot of people are not aware of the kinds of things that you just mentioned. I mean, I've been researching this for a couple of years. I didn't know about those specific sort of machinations that happened in Idaho. Um, and that's that's like exhibit A for the kind of thing that I that I wrote about in the book. Um, so trying to help people become aware of, first of all, what happened. And then second of all, be, because I didn't I didn't want to just do a retrospective on the pandemic. Mm-hmm. That's not my primary concern. Yes, it's important for us to know what unfolded and what happened and what went wrong. But more importantly, this whole infrastructure that we just described uh, is still in place. And even though a lot of the specific 
provisions and the specific um, policies have been rolled back, right? We, we don't have a lot, a lot of places no longer have vaccine mandates, though some universities still do. Uh, vaccine passports, lockdowns, school closures, these things feel like they're sort of in the past. But the entire infrastructure and the entire system that made this possible is still in place. And it's just waiting for the next declared crisis, the next declared emergency, whether real or manufactured, to sort of take the next step in that direction of totalitarian control. So I think this is not stuff that's in the rear view mirror. This is, this is just act one of the play. And um, if, we, if we continue to sort of sleepwalk through this, and I, I understand people want to put the COVID pandemic behind us. Who, who wants to think about it anymore? Who wants to talk about it? It's, it's all we talked about for two, three years straight. I get that. Um, but I think we still haven't come to terms with the, the massive uh, shift that has occurred in our society. And I think, I think March of 2020 was a real hinge point. And I don't think most Americans realize that we're now, our whole society is now moving in a different direction than it was in 2019. Completely, Aaron. So um, the the whole situation is, for me, I had been, you know, researching vaccines. I've made a documentary. In fact, have you seen it, The Greater yes, Good? Have you, seen, have I you have. watched it? Yep. Okay. yep. Yeah, okay. great film. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. You know, starting to research that and learning about the whole, um, just the corruption in the vaccine yep. um, uh, empire, essentially, because that's what it is, right? It's a machine and it's an empire. You know, yeah. the, the CDC spends $5 billion on vaccines every year to give them to um, indigent children. And, um, and they're also supposed to be monitoring the safety of them. I mean, if that's not a conflict of interest, I don't know what is. But that's right. basically, it was all of my work in that that helped me to start to wake up to what was really going on, which is that medicine had gone off the rails at some point. And this, this whole place, you know, look, we're still suing the Los Angeles Unified School District because they still have a COVID-19 vaccine mandate in place for all employees. Even though CDC admitted July 27th of 2021, almost two years ago, that the shots don't stop transmission or infection. They are still pushing out teachers and staff who won't comply to this date. Incredible. Still, it's unbelievable. So this case is a huge case, really, really important because we want to force the courts to reconcile old, you know, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which is yeah. the lawsuit from 1905 with more recent jurisprudence that says that the, um, that you have a right to bodily autonomy, but Coming back to what you're talking about, this whole apparatus is put in place. What is it that terrifies you about it so much personally? Like, what is it about you that really made you start to react and feel like, you know, <laughs> you had to join this fight? Yeah. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a 20th century political theorist named Eric Vogelin, and he studied the totalitarian systems of the 20th century. And he said the, the common feature and the starting point of all totalitarian systems is not concentration camps or mass surveillance or secret police, as horrifying as all of those things are. And as we've already talked about in this conversation, we have some of those things in place right now. There's no doubt that we're living in a society in which the government is engaged in mass surveillance of its own population. Um, and we were building quarantine camps in several states. You mentioned Idaho, New York. Um, that was only stopped by some aware citizens that decided to take the issue to the courts as well and, and you know, make the case that basically the government does not have the authority to do this. I have um, to just say one thing. The camps in Idaho were for children. Incredible. Which is even more frightening because it means yeah. if they were planning to take children away from, from their, their parents. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe because they wouldn't vaccinate them, perhaps. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, no. Anyway, so, sorry. I mean, like, look, <laughs> nobody wants concentration camps, hopefully. Um, maybe the governor of Idaho does. Nobody should want mass surveillance. Um and, and it, nobody should want a, a militarized bureaucracy that basically operates, you know, in ways that are analogous to a secret police. Um, but Vogelin said, um, 
those things are, are not the central feature of totalitarian systems. He said the central feature is the prohibition of questions, mm -hmm. the inability to even ask and pose certain questions is where all totalitarian regimes start. They monopolize what constitutes knowledge. They monopolize what constitutes rationality. And if you object or if you ask any inconvenient questions, like you raise your hand and you ask a question about natural immunity, which we've known about since, you know, the plague of Justinian in the fourth century. <laughs> I mean, like the, the ancients understood how this works, right? And this is not this is not novel. It's not a novel idea. Um, they don't argue with you. They don't debate you. They simply they simply simply place you outside the realm of uh, rational uh, conversation. Um, and you know you're you're not a person worth debating. You're actually you're actually evil because you know you're not on board with whatever the ideology is. Um, you know you. If you're in a communist society, you know, you're 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 infected with bourgeois consciousness and you don't understand the Marxist dialectic of history. So therefore, you know, we could just steamroll you. Um, and uh, and and that's what we started seeing during the pandemic. Right. We we, we now know, uh, thanks to the Twitter files and a, a lawsuit that I'm involved in called Missouri v. Biden, we now know that the government is involved not just in mass surveillance, but in mass censorship, uh, clearly unconstitutional behavior, clearly a violation of Americans' First Amendment's, uh, Amendment rights. But we now have a situation in which not just private companies, which I, I think is bad enough when those co companies basically constitute the modern public square, when the social media companies are controlling what you can and cannot say. But, but now we know they're doing it at the behest of uh, the government. And if you if you ask inconvenient questions, you raise inconvenient uh, data or you pose inconvenient arguments that might undermine the regime's preferred policies, no matter how irrational and insane and sometimes illegal some of those policies are, uh, you're going to be silenced and you're going to be sidelined and you're going to be deplatformed or canceled or, or what have you. Or you're going to be censored without you even knowing it. <laughs> you're going to put something out there. And no one's actually going to see it, which is what a lot of the algorithms are doing now. Um, in some ways, that's even more nefarious than getting a notice that, you know, your video has been taken off YouTube or, or whatever. So the censorship worries me the most because um, because I'm worried actually about totalitarian tendencies in our society. And I think yeah. mo most Americans don't think anything like uh, fascism, Nazism, or communism could take hold in the United States of America. I mean, we fought the Nazis and we defeated them and, you know, we're, we're freedom-loving, you know, red-blooded Americans and all that. But, um, but what I've seen over the last three years suggests to me that any society is capable of falling into uh, – a, a kind of regime of surveillance and control. And our elites definitely have a strong interest in monopolizing uh, what counts as knowledge, monopolizing what can and cannot be said. And I think that's a very, very dangerous situation. Hannah Arendt, who, who's another philosopher who studied totalitarian systems in the 20th century, she points out that once a totalitarian society advances far enough you actually no longer need mass surveillance and you no longer need concentration camps and you no longer need secret police why is that because the ideology of the society becomes internalized totally and you don't need secret police because people start policing one another right and themselves is, and themselves right so they they self-censor censor and they police and snitch on one another, which is exactly what we saw during the pandemic. Totally. Actually, um, you know, if you know, pull your mask up over your nose. I mean, th this this level of micro control over other people's yeah. behaviors was operating at a society wide level. Um, and the ultimate prison is when those kinds of strictures become internalized such that 
the questions no longer occur to you. It no longer occurs to you totally. to question the society that you're living in, to question the latest edict that comes down from on high, no matter how insane, irrational, harmful that edict might be. And what, what worries me the most is not the external forms of control. I mean, those are terrible. Like, I don't like being surveilled all the time. I really don't. I don't think anyone should. I don't think Wrong. any sane just person no... should want to live in a society Listen, like that. Surveillance is not part of a free or just society. Exactly. It's just not. They are antithetical. <laughs> exactly. But what really worries me is people who are walking around in a kind of hypnotized state, people who are sleepwalking, to whom reasonable questions are no longer even arising in their minds. Yeah, like, totally. does this make sense? And hmm. is, you know, is this doing more harm than good? So, um, and I don't, I mean, I don't know what to do about that other than continuing to try to pose inconvenient questions and, you know, be, continue to be a pain in the neck, um, which yeah, <laughs> I'm happy to continue to continue doing, uh, just, just being that gadfly that, um, you know, tries to, tries to poke the Leviathan and, um, and, you know, raise, raise inconvenient questions. I think that's just a really important thing to do right now, because if people don't wake up from that sleepwalking state, I think, you know, it's game over. Yeah, totally. It's really interesting. You know, um, 9-11 was a pivotal event in American history for so many reasons. Like I mentioned, yeah. that's when the Patriot Act was introduced, yep. which allowed warrantless surveillance of us, right? I mean, they that's could right. actually monitor our phones and our texts and do all these things without any justification, which is a violation of our Bill of Rights. I mean, it's insane, right? We're supposed to be secure in our person, in our persons and our belongings, free of um, you know unwarranted or unnecessary seizure, right? This is mm -hmm. our, our search, and yet that's exactly what they did. Um, but I think it's really interesting too. Think about the language that George Bush used during the run-up to the invasion of Iraq, which was you know the 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 totally unjustified invasion of Iraq because we ultimately found out and people actually already knew that Saddam was not connected to 9-11 and that he never had weapons of mass Whoops, destruction. Yeah. It was a complete lie, a lie. just like yeah, yeah. so much of what's happened in the last three years. That's right. But do you remember what he said over and over? You're either with us or oh, you're yes. against us, right? Yeah. Don't you dare ask questions. You're not a patriot if you ask yep. questions. Yep. Don't you hold us accountable. Don't ask questions because you are anti-American if you do so. Yeah. And then do you remember in the years following, I lived abroad until 2005. I lived in London for 10 years and we moved home to Idaho at the end, near the end of 2005. And I was shocked at the pharmaceutical ads on television. That was one thing that I was yeah. shocked by. Yep. But the other thing was, you know, you go in the grocery store and it'd be like, the security level is code orange. And I'm like, what? You know, <laughs> right? Do you remember this? They were telling us all the time yeah, yeah, yeah. what That's the security right. level was. It was yeah. a constant reminder to be afraid, be very, very afraid. And then there yeah. was something even more um, insidious. And that yeah. was, if you see something, tell someone, right? Be paranoid and suspicious of your neighbor. Of your neighbor. And your friend. Yeah. And the person in the grocery yeah. store, if you see something suspicious, yeah. tell someone, right? They have been programming us That's right. for a years. long time. It yeah. did not just start in the last three and a half years. Yeah, you know? no, that's that's well put. I forgot about the threat level orange business because, I mean, that can only have one function, which is, <laughs> which is inducing fear. Because what is an ordinary American supposed to do with that information? Okay, I'm going to be more vigilant of, of what? And- <laughs> So, I mean, terrorism was was very convenient and it worked for about 10 years. And when I trace the history of the, the rise of the biomedical security state, uh, it sort of comes on the heels of uh, the, the terrorism threat. So we could think of 2001 to maybe 2011 as the, the war on terror, where this stuff was really sort of working for Americans. And... At, you know, unlike having an identifiable nation state or an identifiable foreign government, um, I mean, outside of Saddam that we toppled pretty quickly. Um, Fear of the invisible a, enemy, right? It's an invisible enemy and it's an invisible enemy that can never be fully eradicated. 
totally. Right? I mean, how do we know when we've won the war on... We can know when we've won the war on Canada, if God forbid we ever get in a conflict with Canada. But we can't know when we've won the war on terrorism, right? It's never ending. Well, Eisenhower, you know, 60 years ago, in his outgoing speech uh, to the American people, warned of the military uh, industrial complex, this, this whole machinery that has grown up in the wake of World War II, that has massive government funding behind it, um, and, you know, that many Americans rely on for their, uh, you know, for their, their, to make a living, basically. And uh, he warned that this thing would get out of control and it would start dictating our domestic and foreign policy. And the, the military industrial complex requires ongoing fuel to keep it going. And the ongoing fuel is war. And, you know, if foreign nation states are not attacking our borders, then, you know, the war on terror, this invisible enemy, provides a pretty good reason to keep funding this machinery. Um, but Americans grew tired of that eventually. And so then we got then we got the war on viruses. We really started seeing the acceleration, um, you know, starting around 2010, 2011 of this um, hints being dropped of the threat of a pandemic um, and people oftentimes saying very explicitly that there's going to be there's going to be a pandemic and sometimes mm-hmm. uh, I would say it even goes back further because if you look I mean SARS one was what oh two oh three you had yeah. bird flu <clears throat> you had SARS you had bird flu you had Ebola you had yeah, there were some, flu in there 09. Were some you had all these yeah. and let me tell you I mean this is again if you were really yeah. deep into the whole vaccine sphere then you knew what was going on because yeah. They were doing all sorts of things that were tipping their hand. They were showing yeah. their hand to us, and it was very, very obvious. You know, um, it's, um, it's, it's. I don't know. Like, I, I think there was actually. Um, I trace back in the book one conse- consequential shift that I identified, which was actually pre nine eleven. It was, it was a conference in Washington D.C. in nineteen ninety seven, sponsored by the way by Anthony Fauci, where there was a kind of reframing of the idea of managing a pandemic. So traditional public health idea of managing a pandemic would see the pathogen as the threat that we need to defeat, the virus or the bacteria or what have you. And we defeat it by strengthening our defenses against it. You know, so like trying to be healthier, right? Uh, treating people who are sick and isolating or quarantining people who are sick and symptomatic, which is a traditional public health measure, again, going back to antiquity. Uh, but what happened at this conference was the reframing that occurred, which seemed sort of subtle initially until you, you see the implications of it, was that the problem was reconceptualized as instead of the problem being the virus, the SARS or what have you, the problem was the human population. There was a vector of the virus. So instead of trying to manage like a pathogenic threat, by you know traditional medical means one of which might include vaccines but certainly that's not necessarily the centerpiece of dealing with a pathogenic threat um the human population itself became the problem to be solved and controlling the pandemic then required surveilling and controlling the entire population of people as a whole including people who are healthy, which is where we got the the totally unprecedented, completely bizarre, actually insane idea that we could stop the spread of this highly contagious respiratory virus by making people stand six feet apart and by closing schools and by locking people down and by deciding who was and who wasn't an essential worker and all the rest of the, the March 2020 insanity that began to unfold that led obviously inexorably to forced vaccination of the entire population with an inadequately tested novel product. Um, All of that was about total control of everyone, right? Which is another definition of totalitarianism, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Do you think it was ever really truly about public health? No. No, it was about control. It was about control and compliance. Yeah. And money. 
Yeah, of course, <laughs> that little. Yeah, we saw the largest upward transfer of wealth in human history from the working class and the middle class, uh, not just to the upper class, but to the like the tip of the socioeconomic period pyramid. You know, to the wealthiest of the wealthy global elites. Um, so it was it was a world historical scheme of theft of of larceny that it was. I mean, incredible. Like, yeah. Hats off to you people. You you pulled it <laughs> off. Smart. They're smart. Most people don't even realize <laughs> no, that they've just completely been robbed, <laughs> and you've been enriched. Actually, um, not everyone suffered economically during lockdowns. Amazon lobbied for lockdowns on the West Coast. Why? Be because Jeff Bezos is an expert on controlling pandemics. No, look what happened to his personal wealth and what happened to Amazon stocks when their competition was eliminated because small businesses had to close and when everyone had to do e-commerce because they couldn't leave their homes. And so they bought everything online. I mean, it's. Uh, yeah. Listen, two thirds, you know, my background is in finance. Two thirds of Americans are employed by small and medium sized businesses. Okay. If you want to destroy the fabric of American yeah. society right. and independence, okay, people actually being able to earn a living independently and take care of themselves, you shut down small and medium sized businesses and destroy as many of them as you possibly can. And you simultaneously introduce COVID relief funds, AKA UBI, universal basic income. You destigmatize being on the government dole so people will accept it in order to usher in a new paradigm under which most Americans will be actually paid by the government. And if they don't comply, then they don't get their money. That's what's that's what yep. this is all about, in my view, you know. Yeah. So let's talk. You just and of course that I, I I also want to point out that that, you know, sweet sweetening the sweetening the bait with that money, uh, that money disappeared a year and a half later because when you when you print money like that Two and, and, and hand it out, then you get inflation, which inflates away the value of, of, of that money. So, um, so yeah, it, it, it was theft any which way you cut it because, you know, eight, 9% inflation is definitely a form of, of theft for anyone who has cash resources. Yeah. So, and it, people, it also, people... it also, by the way, helps governments that are in massive debt because it helps to inflate the debt away. Absolutely. Um, the higher inf inflation is, then the easier it is for the debt to actually be eroded in value over time. Exactly. That's what happens. You know, um, you may not know, but I, you know, I used to work in finance. I worked at, um, I, I got an MBA from the University of Chicago and then I worked at Goldman and I was a portfolio manager. I ran, I was a director at Europe um, Alliance Capital in London running their European growth portfolio management and research businesses. So I'm fairly facile with yeah, you know more about this than I do. Concepts and markets, you know. I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just looking at it at this yeah. from a, a basic layman's perspective. But I think there are some economic principles that I think I understand. And inflation is bad uh, for some people, and actually good for other it's, people. Can I tell you? It's, principles. it's really good for the person who gets the first print. So yes, if that's you right. if you receive the first hundred dollars that they first print, bolus, yeah, yeah. you can go and spend it, right? Yeah. You can loan it and then get interest on it. You can do yeah. all these things. You can go and purchase goods. And then what happens is it cycles through the economy. And each time it cycles, the value of it erodes because inflation goes up. So the next person who buys their dollar is only worth 99 cents. And the next person who gets that dollar, it's only worth 98 cents. And so by the time it works down to the, you know, working class, yeah. it's a fraction of what yeah. it what it originally was worth. And so this is how they actually rob you, literally. So yeah. it benefits. And it's, it's not just the upper class. I mean, you know, the people who are considered the 1%, the upper class, you don't have to make a huge amount of money to be in that. You don't have to be a billionaire, not even close. You don't even have to be a centimillionaire. You you have to make literally about $500,000, which is a really nice living, but it doesn't make you super wealthy. Yeah. just doesn't. Yeah. These people that we're talking about are billionaires, right? These are the people at the very, right. very top, the that's point right. one yeah. of the 1%. Yeah, and that's right. I really want to explain that because you know, your attorney who makes- 400 grand a year or your doctor who makes 500 grand a year or whomever these people are not the enemy they are not the enemy and they are not the ones who are actually pulling the strings it's the bankers at the very top who are making hundreds of millions if not billions and then all of these other you know entities yeah. so um 
let's, I want to talk about lockdowns, but also maybe that's a good point to actually seg into who are these people? What are the institutions <laughs> that comprise this, yeah. this thing, this, this, like literally this like vampire squid on all of us to borrow from bonfire of the vanities. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Great book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What, what would Tom Wolf have said? <laughs> what, what would he have written about uh, the last three years? I wish, wish he was still around. Um, so I would start with, uh, if you want to identify the, the people who are gaining, um, big tech, right? The, the, the people who are, who are controlling the, the virtual sphere and financially benefiting from, uh, from the virtual sphere, not just the social media companies, but all, all of the ancillary, um, uh, big tech corporations that um, that are moving uh, our lives and our world online, right? And the internet is basically functioning as a data gathering machine for ordinary Americans. Uh, for those who want to do a deeper dive on this, uh, the book to read is, is called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Shoshana Zuboff has, has described basically how... how um, the entire internet now is is monetized through um, through the gathering, packaging up, and sale of your data. And a lot of the devices that we're buying that seem like convenience devices are really data gathering devices. The the little automated vacuum cleaner called a, a Zumba. The whole the whole purpose of that is actually to map your home, map your home, right, <laughs> and to sell that data to anyone who might want to know. You know, if you need to buy more furniture or you know, whatever. Um, so, uh, it, one of the ways people sort of think about that issue is to say that you, you know, you, if you're not paying for it online, then you are the product. Uh, more accurately, as she describes it in that book, you are the raw material from which the product is made. Your being, your your behavior is being mined mm-hmm. continuously uh, to package up that information and. And sell it. Um, so those people certainly gained during the pandemic because the pandemic expanded our lives online, right? All of our communication had to happen. Um, much of our uh, much of our professional life had to happen virtually, where it had happened in face to face encounters before, right? And um, and so people people just spent a lot more time online and that allowed for the data gathering uh, Leviathan to, that fed the machine, that Mm -hmm. fed the algorithms in ways that were previously unprecedented. And the emergency powers that we've already talked about increased the ability of the government, for example, to get in on that action as well and to exercise um, greater and greater levels of surveillance and control using these digital technologies. Um, So those industries gained, for sure. Um, Global finance uh, gained, right? So the the world-spanning wealth management corporations, BlackRock, State Street, you know, that are buying up the single-family homes in the United States as investments, driving up housing prices so that ordinary Americans are having a much harder time getting into a home. These corporations definitely gained during the pandemic. Uh, the, the the group of people sometimes referred to as Davos Man. There's there's a book of that title uh, that talks about some of this upward tra- transfer of wealth during the pandemic, written by a uh, liberal journalist from the New York Times. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if you want to know who benefited during COVID, look at the people who gather in Davos for the annual World Economic Forum meeting of, of the most powerful and wealthiest corporations in the world, and you'll have a pretty good idea of, um, of who benefited. And if you want to know who lost out, um, you know, look at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, the, the largest burdens of the, of all of the pandemic policies fell upon, uh, the poor, 
and the working class, you know, by far. Um, the, The people for whom working from home wasn't possible, the people for whom having their children do school from home was a utter disaster because both parents are out there working, um, you know, doing actual work with their hands to put food on the table. Um, and their kids, you know, it, it, Los Angeles, you mentioned Los Angeles Unified School District. They started burying this data, but initially some of this data leaked out that during the lockdowns on any given day, I think it was only 30% of students even logged in to their online school. Oh Not like attended every class, did their homework, even attended most classes, oh. even logged in. A majority of students in that school district yeah did so not even sad. log in on any given day i mean it was it was it was Listen, crazy. a lot of those kids don't even have computers how yeah, many of those right. families you have three children do they have three computers no I mean, so. it's, it's yeah. insane it was insane it was yeah. just so outrageous um it's 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 truly evil i mean that's the only way i can look at it it is evil these people are wicked they knew exactly what they were doing they knew exactly who was going to be harmed the most yeah. and they proceeded anyway which is actually kind of a good way to to go back to something else that you brought up, which is lockdowns. Most people believed that lockdowns were actually a public health measure based on some kind of rigorous (laughs) research demonstrating the advantages of them. Um, Can you just share where the idea of lockdowns came from and just unpack that subject for us a bit because it's not what people think. Yeah, so lockdowns were initially sold to the American public as actually as a kind of time-tested measure that we were reviving. And the New York Times, um, the day after it was decided by the White House Coronavirus Task Force that we were going to recommend lockdowns, the next day the New York Times came out with a front page piece um, saying, if we want to control the coronavirus, we have to go medieval on it, uh, suggesting that... um, ancient and medieval quarantine practices from the past were going to be the way to tackle this pandemic in the, in the present. But if you, if you look at, um, if you look at older quarantine measures, they would involve things like maybe closing the gates of a walled city. And so there was some, you know, restriction of, of travel from one walled city to another, one enclosed population to another, it would be analogous to closing borders today. And then there was, a, there was a practice of definitely isolating people who were symptomatic in, in order to um, try to keep them a, away from people who are not symptomatic. But never in history before had we locked people in their homes, literally, had we prevented people from plying their trade or working, brought economic activity to a grinding halt, um, even the worst days of of the plague in in Italy uh, or other European countries never saw quarantine measures doing that sort of thing, and they never did it because it didn't work. It was not effective. Um, so, not lockdowns uh, and school closures really were unprecedented during COVID. And the the initial idea, again, I trace it back to that conference in 1997. The WHO kind of floated the idea of lockdowns around 2005 when there was a viral scare, um, but it, it didn't really gain any traction. There was a major paper published, I think it was in 2016, um, by basically the, the, the author was a man who unfortunately died uh, shortly before COVID, but he was, he was a, the, sort of the guru of uh, public health, and he's credited with helping to eradicate smallpox. And he he took a look at some of these society wide measures, like uh, lock the idea of lockdowns, which had been floated in bio biosecurity um, circles, uh, school closures, you know, preventing public gatherings at stadiums. And basically, this paper concluded that these things are going to uh, not be effective, and they're going to do far more harm than good. So mm-hmm. all of our pandemic policies going into COVID, whether it was the, the, the plans, the, the pandemic related plans that we had at the CDC, uh, pandemic related plans that we had at the international level at the WHO, none of them endorsed lockdowns. So what happened in 
February of 2020 was that the WHO sent a group of people to China um, and the representative from the United States uh, is a man whose name is escaping me in the moment, but he was, he was one of Fauci's deputies, uh, Clifford something or other. Anyway, he was a guy at the NAIAD, went to China. The Chinese Communist Party, of course, lied to the WHO delegation and said, we've controlled the spread of this virus in Wuhan through these extreme authoritarian lockdowns. And if you want to control the spread of this virus in your own countries, you should do the same thing. So he came back and re reported to Fauci that lockdowns were the way to go. I don't think Fauci took a lot of convincing since he had for the last 20 years kind of cultivated and developed this society wide approach to biosecurity that I described earlier. And um, basically, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, um, who was a military and intelligence operative, basically, before she was appointed to the White House Coronavirus Task Force, um, they they told the president that this is what we have to do. I, I think it ran contrary to Trump's instincts, but he went along with it, mm -hmm. uh, I think, to his great discredit. Uh, and then Burks ran around basically telling state governors, and this is some of what started the race to the bottom among the state governors, that if you don't do this, if you don't lock down hard and harder than the next guy, there's going to be blood on your hands and you're going to be responsible for unnecessary deaths. And um, and so very quickly in a in a way that is still, I think, hard to explain, um, we pivoted from, you know, 20 years of debate and reflection on whether we should try something like this in the face of a contagious uh, pathogen. We pivoted uh, kind of in a panic and uh, the lockdowns took over. Now, again, I think I think there were a lot of other non-political forces at work that were pushing for that. Um, See, I think I think in some ways, Aaron, I mean, um, you know, I'm a, a true cynic. I've watched way too many things happen and unfold over many years. And, you know, in 2019, religious exemptions to vaccinations were taken away in California yeah. and New York. Yep. Okay. And also, if you had just told Americans, oh, we're just going to lock down without China having shown the way, there's no way Americans would have accepted it. And so I think that it was actually far more sinister than that. I think all of this, oh, it was China, they're the bad guys and they did it. I don't buy it for a second. I think that there was clear collusion and that this was started in China in order to show the West how to do it. And don't forget, where was the first place in the West that actually locked down? Italy. Italy did it first. So I really believe it was far more. I know that the authorities and intelligence want to tell you that China was a rogue nation. But I mean, when all the intelligence agencies agree about something, I think it's probably a good good idea to question whatever it is they're saying. And yeah, so no, a hundred percent. I mean, it was clear that the World Health Organization was endorsing the Chinese model from the get-go. Totally. So we had Tedros, we had Tedros on Twitter saying we need to look to China as a model. Um, the, um, the chief public health officer in Italy had strong ties to the Chinese Communist Party. So I think, yeah, I think it is interesting that Italy was the first Yes. country to go into lockdowns. And then once once the United States decided to lock down, then it was game over for the rest of the world. They sort of all fell like like dominoes with yeah. very, very few exceptions. No, some notable exceptions, but yes. very few. I was having um, parties. I was having parties anyway. I didn't give it to you about these people. <laughs> yeah, I just remember. So, I mean, I worked every day uh, of the pandemic and I had a, I have a 30. I had at the time a 30 mile commute up to the university hospital and I remember driving the I-5 North, which is usually jammed with traffic and, you know, it took me twice as long to get to work um, before the pandemic as it did during the lockdowns. And I, I just remember driving down the street, not seeing another car on the road and just, just having this deep sense in my gut that something terrible has just happened and um, things are never going to be the same. Yeah. Like, like everything just changed. And I don't know how this happened, but and I don't know what comes next, but I, I knew in my gut that um, 
that the world we were going to wake up to when this was all over was going to be a very different world uh, from the one that we existed in just a few weeks ago. Yeah, it's crazy. Maybe that's a good point for me to ask you this. Um, somebody posted on Twitter, I forget who it was, months ago, um, what was the thing that disappointed you most during the COVID crisis, the COVID event? And I posted, um, uh, my fellow Americans' willingness to comply unquestioningly. What was it for you? I would say, I would say the same thing. I think the thing that troubled me the most was the willingness, um, the willingness to harm children out of misplaced fear. Uh, I mean, even if you believed everything that the public health authorities were telling you, the idea that we should vaccinate children, uh, even though children are not at risk from this virus, is a clear admission that I'm using this child instrumentally to shield me from harm. Right. So I mean, even if we accept all the premises around the vaccines, which I don't because safety and efficacy were not what we were initially sold. Um, but OK, let, let me just give people the benefit of the doubt that they were acting in good faith and they were believing what the public health authorities were, were telling them and they were wanting to do the right thing. Um, but they were willing to harm children. They were willing if, if the vaccines have any risk. And of course, they have some risk. Why would you put a child at some degree of risk to try to lower your own risk? That's just so wrong. I mean, in a healthy society, adults put themselves in harm's way. Adults assume additional risks in order to protect children, not the other way around. So I, I found the push to vaccinate children and vaccine mandates in schools. To perhaps and masks, masks and, and separation. Yeah. And, you know, you see these kids playing their instruments in a little tent in the gym or kids here had to carry around a plexiglass cube that they had to sit in. I mean, this is just, yes, they use children as human shields. Yeah. And that is one of the most disgraceful things that Americans have ever done, ever. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the harm to children and the harm to the poor and most vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and, and then there were just some arbitrary and capricious and disgusting things that happened within medicine as well. I mean, people, you had a kidney donor it was a perfect match for a recipient. It's not like that organ was going to go to someone else. And they wouldn't do the kidney donation because either the donor or the recipient wasn't vaccinated. Both of them had consented. Both of them knew that, you know, one or the other was not vaccinated. They were, and, and, and the, the medical establishment of the hospital refused, refused to do a life-saving procedure, knowing that the person was going to die without the transplant. I mean, things like that. Just, I, I just, I just, as a physician, I just found so disgusting and, and shameful. I mean, there was, there was, unfortunately, there were just many moments, Leslie, yeah. where um, I, was just, I was just so ashamed of my own profession. Mm-hmm. And I had never felt that way before. I mean, I, I, there was, I've always been critical of problems in medicine. I've never had, you know, I, I'm a medical ethicist and I've, you know, I've spent my career pointing out things that we get wrong and things that we do wrong and being, being critical of, so it wasn't as though I had a sort of Pollyannish view of, of the medical establishment. Um, but I, I, I never felt this level of just shame and, and quite frankly, just, just, just disgust at, mm-hmm. toward, um, toward fellow physicians in my profession for uh, going along with things that were just so clearly gross. Yeah. Um, and con- contrary to everything that we claim to profess as physicians. So I don't know. The, the list is long. I'm trying to pick out one thing. There was just when Isn't I thought I couldn't sad? be more, more horrified, you know, a new policy would come down the pike or a new revelation. And I was, I was, um, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm still processing yeah. everything that happened. And I've thought a lot about it. I, mean, I wrote a book about it. I've, I've, I've been knee deep in this stuff for, you know, since March of 2020. And um, uh, I, I don't, I still don't think I understand completely what we've lived through 
and I'm not sure we will understand it for decades, perhaps. Yeah. So. so this is all very depressing. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. There's certain things that we can do. And you talk about what you think are ways that people can push back. So why don't we yeah. end on a positive note? Why don't you yeah, yeah. share with us what you think are the best ways that people yeah. can actually push back, um, try and I, I think... I think that when we are feel that we have some power, we're inspired. We yeah. no longer feel helpless. We actually feel that there's something that we can do. And so I just, I don't know what your thoughts are, but please share with us what you, you know, how you think that people can feel empowered and inspired. Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. So totalitarian regimes, and I do believe we're moving in a totalitarian direction globally, actually, always eventually collapse under the weight of their own contradictions. So that's the good news. This, this will not and cannot last forever. Now, the bad news is that they can be sustained for a long period of time by the machinery that keeps them propped up. So um, fascism in Italy and Nazism in Germany collapsed fairly quickly, uh, not quickly enough, obviously. The, we still had the Holocaust. Uh, Soviet communism took a very long time from what, 1917 to 1989 to for those contradictions to fully kind of work themselves out. So the question for us is, um, how do we accelerate that process toward that tipping point where all of these lies that have been piled upon lies and the propaganda that is propping up this system uh, can no longer prop it up anymore? How do we accelerate that process? And what can ordinary Americans do? Like, Many of our listeners might be thinking, okay, well, you know, the two of you have an audience and you have a microphone and you can, you know, you can speak to people beyond your own small circle of friends. I'm just an ordinary person without, you know, expertise or influence in, in these domains. What can I do? I would say, uh, first of all, this, this fight requires every single American to get involved. And it's not going to collapse just because there's some lawyers or some doctors running around out, out there kind of doing activist work or filing lawsuits. And, you know, that stuff's important. And I'm engaged in that stuff because I think it's important and it's a piece of the puzzle. Um, but I think the first thing that people can do is, uh, number one, stop self-censoring. It, it doesn't mean you say every thought that comes into your head mm -hmm. all the time in every social context with no filter. No. OK, there's discretion and there's prudence and there's a time and a place for everything. But, but when you notice yourself not saying what you think um, to another person or in a small group of people, ask yourself why and ask yourself, okay, is this really sort of prudence and discretion or am I acting out of fear here of what are other people going to think or what are other people going to say? Or how, how might I be stigmatized if I speak up and say what I think and, and tell the truth? And I think what you'll find is in, in those moments, if you can find the courage to be a little bit daring, cowardice and self-censoring self cowardice is contagious. But courage is also contagious. And oftentimes it just takes one person in a group setting to say, you know what? No, I, I disagree. I don't think that's right. Or I don't think that's what happened. Or I don't think that's true. And then other people start feeling empowered to do the same. You know, and they may come up to you only afterwards, kind of looking over their shoulder silently and say, Psst, hey, thank you for speaking up. I agree with you. Or they may also, you know, jump in in the moment and say, yeah, you know what? I, I, I've been thinking about that too, right? And um, so one, I talked earlier about this process of internalizing the strictures and the, um, the external controls start becoming habitual for us. That's a very bad state for all of us to be in. So notice when you're self-centering and then try to find opportunities to push back against that and start saying what you think, regardless of the consequences. And I think if enough people start doing that, then the truth has a chance of starting to take hold and prevail. And we're seeing, we're, we're seeing that beginning to happen. I mean, I think it's, it's much harder today than it was a year ago to find anyone who will publicly defend lockdowns, for example. So there's, there's many, many things that our society still has not come to terms with regarding the pandemic, but some of the things uh, we definitely have. 
and uh, or we've at least begun that process. And so we need we need more of that. We need to keep picking up steam and picking up momentum in terms of being able to uh, rethink and challenge much of what was done to us. And I think that's something that all of us can do. Uh, so that that's my first piece of advice. And then there's everyone in their own way. There's many ways to get engaged, many ways to get involved, many uh, initiatives and people to support in whatever way that you that you can that are fighting for uh, medical freedom, that are fighting for constitutional rights and uh, plenty of work to be done in that area. But I think in our own small sphere, starting with our families, our friends, our acquaintances, our neighbors, our colleagues at work, um, all of us can exercise an influence in those domains, but it requires a little bit of daring and a little bit of courage. And I think we need to just sort of collectively start finding our courage again and, and realize what the fear um, and, and the deliberately uh, uh, induced fear of the last three years has actually done to us psychologically and begin to recover from that. Yeah. I would even say that, I mean, I love that, Aaron, that's beautiful. And I think it's so spot on. I spent the last two days with my 20 year old son. And it was interesting because I made a comment. He, he'd injured himself and we had to go and get an X-ray of his foot. And I said to the guy who was doing the X-ray, you know, he's been using homeopathy and it's really done great. It's not nearly as bad as it was yesterday. And afterwards my son said, you know, why do you say that? And I'm like, cause I'm just planting a seed, honey. Yeah. And you know, he's young. These kids have grown up with cancel culture. And our whole society has been influenced by cancel culture, and we must push back against that. And just finding your voice is the first step in doing that and reclaiming literally the public square. So, Aaron, this has been such a delight. Thank you so much for being with me. Could you please tell our viewers where they can find you, where they can follow your work, sure. repeat your net, your books, the, the title of your book and all that kind of stuff for us? Yeah, so thank you. The book is called The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. And uh, you could find it anywhere you buy books, including online booksellers. Uh, you could follow me on Twitter at A Cariati, K-H-E-R-I-A-T-Y is my Twitter handle. I have a Substack newsletter uh, that I post my writing and you can keep up on my work with free speech lawsuits and other cases that I'm involved in. Uh, so aaroncariotti.substack.com is where you can find me there. And uh, I've got a website as well where I po post writings and interviews and things of that nature. So it's not hard to find me online. And uh, I appreciate this opportunity, Leslie, to uh, chat with you about this. Big fan of, of your work and appreciate everything that you've done uh, during the pandemic. So this has been fun. It's been great. Thanks so much, Aaron. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Likewise. Thanks so much for listening to Conversations on Health Freedom. Please follow us at healthfreedomdefense.org, where you can become a member, subscribe to our newsletter, donate to our cause, and follow us on social media. Mm -hmm.